Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Braden Enterman. So the sermon is entitled Winners on the Run, which may sound a bit of a paradox, but hopefully it'll make sense as we go through the sermon. Please bow your heads with me. My Father, I want to thank you so much for the privilege that we have to be, to be connected with you and to be able to be brothers and sisters in the family of God and to be children of the Heavenly King. Lord, we want to thank you so much that you brought us here, Lord. I, I just cannot begin to imagine the things that some people in this room today have been through this week, the griefs and the sorrows that they have borne, the challenges that they've faced. And I want to pray to you, Lord, that they would hear from you this morning, uh, from your word, a message that will encourage and inspire and challenge and uplift. I pray that your spirit would rest upon me. And in this room, uh, may we be um, convicted that we've met with Jesus, I pray in your name. Amen. Okay. I just want to begin by noting some of the experiences that I've had when walking into churches. And I'm not going to divulge any details about which churches it was, but I've walked into some churches. And I tell you what, there's this... It happened this year. Uh, I was at a church and I was just overwhelmed with this, this, this sensation, this feeling as I was waiting to preach. I was standing at the back of the church and I was just waiting. And I was just really impressed. God impressed me with this idea. Did Jesus design his church to be a defensive organization or to be an organization that's on the front foot going forth conquering and to conquer? Did he design his church to be defensive or on the positive front foot? There's some churches that I've been into where I just have this tone of defensiveness. I just see it very, very clearly, just emanating from the pews, emanating from the pulpit. There's this defensiveness, just terrified lest anything should walk in and defile the church. I don't know if you've ever felt felt that kind of an atmosphere before. The discussions are all about all the terrible things that are coming into the church and all these different things that the, the church is feeling threatened and it's basically like if anyone walks in the door, you're just waiting to just karate chop them um, in, in case they bring something terrible into church. I had an encounter at another church another year where a friend of mine came to church. Didn't come very often, but he came in shorts and thongs. And a dear old saint confronted him and berated him mockingly about his choice of attire for the day. Does that make anyone else cringe a little bit? You've probably seen it a few times. And I just, I just asked the question, what in the world did God create his church to be? An organization that's in a group of people that are always feeling threatened by any different thing and just lashing out and attacking at every little thing that pops up that makes them feel vulnerable. Is this the model that Jesus has given us to follow? Did Jesus design his church to just be just everything that's happening, just re- reacting to it and just, just totally out of control and just like criticizing here, criticizing there, just trying to keep things under wraps? Is that what he designed his church for? Absolutely not. So this is the big question today. God has created his church. Jesus created his church for a reason. And I think we sometimes can be iced over, the church can be iced over, and we can fail to reach the, the potential and the mission for, for which Christ has raised us up. 
There's a beautiful verse in Proverbs 28 and verse 1. And it says this. The wicked flee when no one pursues. But the righteous are bold as a lion. Is that your experience? The wicked flee when no one pursues. But the righteous are bold as a lion. There's this boldness, there's this courage that is part of the fabric of the life of someone who is a child of God, the righteous. But on the flip side, you've got the wicked, and they're fleeing when no one pursues. There's actually no real threat, but they're actually running. There's this defensiveness, there's this scary, they're just afraid of different things, they're running backwards, they're fleeing, and actually there's no real threat at all. Does that happen sometimes in our churches? Terrified at threats that don't really exist. Worried about this in the defensive mode rather than having courage as a lion and being courageous to meet challenges and to live above them. There's another verse in Numbers. Now, God was explaining to the people of Israel the the covenant promises, the blessings and the, the curses. He was outlining to them what life would be in a relationship and a connection with him, living by his values, and on the flip side, what would happen to them if they were to cast aside his values, his system of social justice and care for the world, and do their own things, exploiting the poor, all these different things. He said, And as for for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. And the sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. They shall flee as though fleeing from a sword, and they, shall f- and they shall fall when no one pursues. They shall stumble over one another, as it were before a sword, when no one pursues, and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. What an interesting verse. Then it goes on to say a few verses later, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they they were unfaithful to me and that they also have walked contrary to me and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant. What an interesting verse. Notice this one right here. The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. I remember as a child, my my job was to take the rubbish to the bin. Did anyone else have that job when they were younger? (laughs) Taking the rubbish to the bin. And I had to walk along the side of the house, and then there was a little gap where there was a gate, and that's where the bins were. And I would walk along, and the gate was around the corner, and it was always dark when I was asked to do it. And the bins were across that, that little gap there. And as I'd, as I'd come down, I'd come up to the corner and I'd just, just, in, just terrified. I'd jump forward, open the bin, throw the rubbish and just sprint up the other, just sprint away. Because the gate always used to blow in the wind. It used to just creak and groan. A big wel- welcome to my friends John and Tamara. Good to see you guys. Um, and so I'd, I'd be terrified. And guys, was there anything around the corner? No. It was just a bit of wind blowing against... But in my imagination, I was just terrified as a little kid that I'd see, a, see something scary. The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. No real threat. But there's this defensiveness, there's this frightenedness, and they're just reactive to all these different situations. There's no courage, the courage of a lion. There's this nervousness. 
Can you see in the story, could you take me to anywhere in the Bible where there's an example of defensive-style religion? It's all about defensiveness and protecting oneself. Can, where would you take me to give me an example? Pharisees. The Pharisees. Perfect. We're going to go there. Um, what's some other, other things in the Bible? Sometimes where they just... There's always two options. If, if Israel was unfaithful to what God called them to do, they'd either go into rank apostasy and idolatry, where they just wouldn't care about anything, or they'd go the other extreme where they're just like locking themselves down, building up walls all around them so that no defilement can come in, and they're just freaking out at anything that happens. Pardon? Yeah, Tower of Babel. I want to ask you the question today. What example do we see in the life and ministry of Jesus? Was he ever defensive in his entire life? Was he on the back foot just, you know, just reacting to the situation or was he always on the front foot, walking confidently into every situation? When the Pharisees came at him with an accusation, when they came at him with religious controversy, did Jesus make some jab shots back in as he's retreating into the corner? No, he'd walk steadily forward, unfazed by what is going on. He's on the positive front foot. He's just unaffected, not drawn into controversy, not brought down to their level. He knows what the Proverbs say. Do not answer a fool according to his folly. A soft answer turns away wrath. And he just continues on, step by step, confidently engaging in the ministry that um, he came to this world to do. One of the things in the Old Testament that's very, very clear is that there's certain things that would ceremonially defile you. And there was also hygienic implications here as well. If you touched a dead body... If you were to, um, if you had, if you're during your period, for example, for ladies, there's a whole bunch of things that could make you ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. And the Jews at the time of Jesus were just terrified of getting defiled. That even made people unclean. They said the Gentiles were unclean. And walking into the markets, just getting in contact with the Gentile, you're unclean and you come back and you have to do these little washings and stuff like that. The Bible never said to do that stuff. But they, they came up with all these different ritual things to make sure they're clean. That you wouldn't go where the Gentiles are because I want to keep clean. You're just constantly reacting to the environment and just encasing yourself further and further into the, to the holy grounds of the, of the temple and not wanting to go anywhere else. Is that the way that Jesus designed his church to function? In Mark chapter 5, we see one of the most amazing things that I've ever found in the New Testament. The first person that Jesus encounters in this particular chapter is a demon-possessed man. It says he was possessed with an unclean spirit. You don't get more unclean than an unclean spirit. And Jesus, instead of running away from him, comes up to him. And rather than being defiled by him, imparts life-giving purity and virtue to him. Rather than being defiled, he cleans. He's not reacting to the environment. He's actually going forward and giving life, giving virtue. He's encouraging, he's healing, he's inspiring. And then he meets a lady. As he's in the crowd, there was a guy by the name of Jairus who came and said, my daughter's about to die, can you please come and help me? She's only 12. And then there was a lady who had a a flow or an issue of blood for 12 years. She'd spent all of her money desperately trying to get help, but no one would be able to help her. 
And as she saw Jesus going by, she, by she, her heart was just throbbing to be able to get a chance to see him, but the crowd was around. And so she decided to run through the crowd and just reach out and just grab the edge of his garment. And as soon as she touched him, she was healed. And she realized that she was healed inside out and she was just so happy. And then Jesus said, who touched me? He knew who touched him. And Peter's like, well, everybody's touching you, Jesus. What are you talking about? He said, I I perceive that healing virtue has come out of me. And the lady came forward and acknowledged and testified to what God had done through her. This would have been extraordinarily significant for the Jewish, in the Jewish culture. Demon-possessed man, straight on then to an unclean woman who's been bleeding for the last 12 years. She reaches out and touches Jesus, but rather than making him unclean, he makes her clean. There's, this, there's no de- react... Jesus isn't like on the, trying to evade all these people. She's got the issue of blood and running off. He, he imparts life-giving virtue. They continue over to um, Jairus' daughters to, to heal, to help the daughter. But some messengers come and say, don't worry. Don't worry, Jesus, any longer. She's actually dead. And Jesus said, just, he just kept going. He's not going, oh, no, death is, you know. He just keeps walking, walking confidently. He says, let's keep going. And he gets to the place, and is the dead body clean or unclean? It's unclean. And he reaches out, and he touches the body of that little girl and calls her and says, Um, Little girl, I say to you, arise, and lifted her up by the hand. And she stood up. Rather than becoming unclean himself, he imparted life-giving power. He was willing to go to places where the Pharisees wouldn't dare to go. They should have gone, but they were just too afraid. They were worried about getting impure or unclean, and Jesus just walking forward confidently, step by step, every single day, they'd come up with a new way to trick him. And he would just answer humbly with the scriptures and just keep going on his, on his way. While the Pharisees are arguing about all these different high and convoluted ideas and whatnot, Jesus is out there overturning the kingdom of darkness and providing healing and purity in the place of pain and impurity. Light is just spreading around Palestine because Jesus is walking forward, conquering and to conquer. He never argued. He never got negative. He never got argumentative. He wouldn't get defensive if someone questioned his, 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 his way he does things. He'd just give a scriptural answer and just keep going on. He didn't have feel he has to debate things and try to like get in the corner like, but you said this and just in, you're fighting yourself into the corner. Have you ever seen that in churches sometimes? There's a defensiveness. It's a, everyone's highly strung and you're just waiting at the door, just watching if there's any monkey business coming in the door, ready to pounce on it if it comes. Did Jesus design his church to function like that? This is Jesus' mission statement, Luke chapter 4. Jesus said this, and it's quoting from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Does that sound like a defensive ministry or a proactive front foot ministry? He's conquering. He's going forth into enemy territory. He's healing. He's setting free. He's delivering. He's empowering. 
He's not, he's not hiding in the corner just reacting to all of the evil in the world. It makes me wonder sometimes. When we are terrified about all these different things, we're just hiding away like this, who, do, who are we acknowledging as more powerful? The kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light? Jesus knew the power of the gospel and he went forth and he knew that he did not have to enter into controversy. He did not have to come down to that level. He could just go forth conquering and to conquer on the front foot, never drawn down into petty arguments, into that cheap and nasty stuff that we find ourselves in so much. He just had this vision and he had time for children. He wasn't caught up in politics. He was just had time for children. It was The disciples were like, get away kids, go away. And Jesus was like, no, come to me. He just seems to be constantly breaking down barriers. They're like the Samaritans, yuck. And then Jesus goes to the Samaritans and intercepts a woman at the well. He came there directly for her. He seems to be unaffected by all the nonsense and the prejudice that we get caught up in so often in our world. He's an amazing saviour. I want you to turn with me now to Mark chapter 7. We're going to do a fair bit of reading together, but I really want to um, communicate what's in this chapter. So Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So Mark's the second book in the New Testament. Okay, Mark chapter 7 and verse 1. I've got the New King James Version. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. They became critical. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they came from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washings of cups and pictures and copper vessels and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and other such things as you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. What an interesting encounter. And we're going to keep coming back to this. Jesus is on his mission of mercy, breaking down barriers and going into places and freeing captives from the, the snares of the devil. And what are the religious leaders worried about? Washing hands. It's amazing where people's focus can be. And I'll tell you what, this wasn't a hygienic cleanse. This was a ritualistic cleanse. Everyone knows you've got to have clean hands to eat. But what they used to do, they used to get a little bit of water in the palm of their hands. It was the amount that would fit in an egg and a half, I think. There's a, you have a perfect amount of water, you've got to put it in here, and you've got to make sure it doesn't fall out, and you've got to just wash and wash and wash. And It, it doesn't do anything, it's just water. But it was a symbolic ceremony to cleanse you from all of the contact with all the pagan world. Just absolutely terrified. And you, 
And the disciples, they're with Jesus. They're following his example. He realizes that when you have the Spirit of God in your life, you are a source of life. You are a source of purity. You don't have to be worried about being defiled. You are the one who's actually bringing the life-giving message of the gospel into people's lives. And here they are just watching him. They're like, he's not washing hands. And they come up and they're, 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 they're arguing. They're, and Jesus says, guys, you lay aside the commandments, the values of heaven for all of your traditions that you've just heaped upon yourself. And they're just, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, you're getting defiled. They're just, they're just, it's a very defensive back foot kind of religious experience rather than Jesus walking forward confidently. Now, this next situation is very, very interesting. And I'll explain it. Verse 10, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. And many such things you do. This is not just an isolated incident. Many such things you do. When you read that first, that little bit that I just read, does it make sense straight away? It's a little bit confusing, the language, but this is what, what was happening in that, in that day and age. God cares about people. He cares about the marginalized in society and the vulnerable. He told the Jews of old, he said, look after your mother and your father. They looked after you. Provide for them. Look after them. They looked after you. But the conniving, cunning priests had worked out a way around that. A loophole to get you out of your obligation to look after your family. And so a son or a daughter who has some means, which they, would, which they should use to help their family, they could pronounce it Corban or a gift to God. And that would override... So basically, that would after they die, they would be given to the, to the church, be given to the religious leaders. And they basically say, sorry, mom and dad, I've dedicated this to God, sorry. And it allowed them to use it for the rest of their lives and just live selfish lives. And who came up with that? The Pharisees. They worked out a way that if you, if you dedicate it to God, you don't have to look after your family anymore, as if they're two distinct things. If you love God, will you... Yeah, be devoted to God, but just don't care about your family. This is how twisted and selfish religion had come. It was all inward looking. It was all worried about the externals. This is how it had degraded down to. This is where I want to get to right here. Verse 14. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. Is Jesus speaking to us here? Hear me, everyone, and understand. Pay attention. This is the most vital thing you will hear. There is nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you catch the power in what Jesus is saying? Nothing from the outside can defile a person. It's what comes out of a person that defiles a person. If you eat with, un, with hands that are not ceremonially washed, that's not how you become impure. 
You become impure when you entertain thoughts of hatred and, and, and envy and jealousy inside of you. That's impurity. Having unwashed hands, that's okay. The disciples were mortified. They're like, what? Verse 17. And when he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart. It does not enter his heart. But his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Very interesting what he's talking about. And I want you to think, we're going to make an application at the end, but I want you to think, what things are you afraid of that they will defile you? What type of person do you like? <laughs> we can be always just running away from things, terrified that we're going to get contaminated by people or things. When it's not what enters into a man that defiles him, it's what comes out. That's why Jesus could spend time with tax collectors and sinners and in a woman who had been caught in adultery. He could, he could stand next to her and lift her up. Because he recognized that it's not what comes in, it's not the environment, it's not, that's not what makes you impure. It's what comes out. And as he went forth, just having nothing but unutterable love in his heart for human beings, he was a source of life, overriding the power of Satan, purifying those polluted situations and those lives. He was just going forth, conquering and to conquer. Beautiful. And now we get to a story that illustrates this. Matthew chapter 15, which we could continue in this particular story, the story of the Syrophoenician woman, but I like the rendition in Matthew 15 a little better. It's a little bit more comprehensive. So keep that just in mind. That's exactly the situation that's just happened. And now Jesus does something radical. Verse 21, Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there, and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Let me give you a bit of background here. Um, I'll go to this one first. For those of you who are unfamiliar with where the biblical scenes took place... This is where it all happened right here. Most of it anyway. This is where Israel is and this is where Jesus is in this particular situation. And he leaves the place where he was down here in Bethsaida and he walks out to the coast. One of his biggest expeditions away from the area. And he goes all the way up into Paganville, up into Sidon. This is where all the pagans live. This is not where the Jews live. There are, there are a few of them. They're scattered around the place. I want to ask you a question. Why in the world did Jesus go up there? That's unclean. That's unclean. What was that, Lyle? It's a long way. It's a long way. I've, 
I don't know how far that is, but I don't imagine that a day's journey would be many, multiple days' journey. Why in the world did Jesus go up there? should be keeping yourself clean down in, in Jerusalem. Why did he go up there? Read the account in the book Desire of Ages and it will just stir your heart. Ellen White shares that Jesus knew that this lady was looking for him and he decided to intercept her. He decided to cross paths with her and he made this massive journey all the way up just to cross paths with this lady to be able to help her. He knew that there was this lady who was just terrified that her daughter is like rolling around and demon-possessed and like doing all this terrible stuff. Like we read from the other accounts of demon possession that the demons would try to drown the children, throw them into the fire when they're sleeping and terrible situation. And this mother is just, she's had many a sleepless night and she's terrified that her daughter will, her life will be taken. She has no power over this devil and she has no idea what to do. But there's a few Jews who live up in that area and the news has gotten around that there's a teacher from Galilee who doesn't just hear the rich and the famous and the wealthy. He'll even reach out and heal a leper and even touch a leper. He will help a lady who has been bleeding for, for 12 years. He will, he will even raise a dead child to life irrespective of their social class. And faith and hope springs in her heart and she's just desperately desiring to see him but has no idea how. And even if she did find him, she's a Gentile and impure. And so, man, that's, that's a bit of a tough situation. But the creator of the universe comes hunting for her. If you're in a situation where you're just crying out for God, don't feel that you have to make a big expedition to find him. He will come to you. How do we know this? Because he came from heaven to this earth. That's his model of conquest. He doesn't wait till we sort ourselves out. He comes down to our level and extends healing, grace and love to each one of us. So he comes to this lady um, and there's a bit of a bigger picture of, of the root. The only reason he went there was for this lady. The only reason. Verse 23 you might find this very bizarre. But he answered her not a word. This lady comes and she cruises in on her knees and she's crying. Son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is sick. She's, she's got the demon possession. Please help. And Jesus keeps walking and doesn't say anything. Now this would have shocked the disciples because Jesus was one who never ever turned anyone away. And Jesus was very intentional to communicate a very powerful point here that they'd never forget in the rest of their lives. They're like, oh yeah, that's, yeah, we can, yeah, these, are, these, are un, these are unclean people. And he said, they're like, Jesus is, you know, setting a good example here. Yeah, these terrible people and, yep, this is, this is how we're meant to behave. And she's crying, she's crying for him. And she keeps following and just dropping down by his knees and worshipping him. Help me, please help me. And the disciples are like, oh, this ridiculous, unclean, Syrophoenician woman. Let's get her out of here. Notice what happens. Verse 23, but he answered her not a word. And the disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. He's so annoying. He's just crying and weeping all the time. It's just uncomfortable. Verse 24. Now, this, I had a total flip out last night as I read this verse. I never understood it. Verse 24, 
But he answered and said, in response to what they said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. How have you understood that? Has anyone heard that before? The lost sheep of the house of Israel thing? Who is that? I heard someone say Jews. That's how I've always understood it. But reading The Desire of Ages last night, it changed my perspectives. Everyone. I want to to show you something here. This This is where the children of Israel were operating. The lost sheep of the house of Israel is everyone out here who does not know the beautiful God that they know. They are the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They're not lost sheep within the house of Israel. They are the lost sheep that God is calling into this community of faith that are wandering on the hills in just terrible places and in terrible situations growing up in paganism where you bow down to idols and offer your children as sacrifices. He's calling them. And he designed Israel, his people, his church, to be able to reach out and to welcome those sheep into the fold. Because God never designed the nation of Israel to just be something to do with genetics, where you're born a Jew and then therefore you're, you're awesome. It's a community of faith who trusts the promises of God. The lost sheep of the house of Israel are the people outside of the land of Israel. Interesting, really powerful. Let's continue the story here. Verse 25, then she came and worshipped him and saying, Lord, help me. Please don't cast me aside. Please help me. Verse 26, one of the most bizarre things that Jesus ever said, but it's powerful. But he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Incredible. Jesus, do you find that a little bit weird that Jesus would say that? It's like, what is he talking about? In the book Desire of Ages, it's so beautiful. Even though Jesus said that, you know, the the comment about the the children's bread, bread being given to the little dogs, his expression, everything that was coming from him was communicating acceptance and love. You know, if I was to say that to someone, you, know, you, could, you could pull out a, a negative kind of way to say that. But even as Jesus said, it's not fit to give the children's bread to the little dogs. And she recognized, this guy loves me, this guy cares. What he was communicating to those disciples that day was, there's no such person as a dog. These guys aren't dogs. These are children. These are the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the disciples are standing there stunned as this woman's faith has been acknowledged. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. He came all the way, not just to planet Earth, but made a massive expedition up to Sidon just to cross paths with her because he wanted to heal that lady. He wanted to be able to give healing virtue, to heal that daughter who was just in a terrible, terrible state. A terrible state. Meanwhile, back on the ranch, 
These are some of the issues that the religious leaders of the day were discussing. Is it right to pluck grain and eat on the Sabbath? Is it right to heal on the Sabbath? Just criticising Jesus' every move. What is the correct procedure to wash your hands? Does Jesus pay temple tax? Are there any divorce loopholes? They're coming and they're, making, they're trying to test Jesus with the concept of divorce. Who authorised Jesus to preach? That's meant to be a two there. They're looking at the technicalities of taxation, trying to trip him up with a complication within that. And then the technicalities of Sadducees, the technicalities of the resurrection. They're like, what if this... What if there's a lady who has seven houses? They just come up with this ridiculous scenario. And Jesus says, come on, guys, and continues walking confidently in his ministry. This is back on the ranch. This is the stuff that they are doing. They made it as difficult as possible for people to serve God. They were seeking the praise and approval from people. They sought status and fame. They took advantage of the vulnerable rather than looking after them. They turned people away from the kingdom of God rather than welcoming them in. They were obsessed with the minutiae. They're, like, they're, they're, they're tithing their herbs and their spices. And Jesus says, yeah, that's fine, but don't forget love and mercy and justice. Don't forget those awesome things. So they neglected justice, mercy, and faith. They used religion as a cloak to cover their selfish ambition. Beautiful music, wasn't it? It was just a good, I should have started my appeal right there. They used religion as a cloak to cover their selfish ambition. ambition. What a terrible situation this was back on the ranch. Jesus, on the other hand, stepped over the barriers and went into the Gentiles' world to intercept them, not just for corporately, but to one lady. He goes on a massive expedition to find one lady. He's... he's, he's He's not brought down into that kind of stuff. He's operating on another, another level. He's doing warfare in a different way. His warfare is not one of you know, just pushing things away and just, I'm going to get unclean. He just walks forward confidently, trusting in the Father to be able to be a blessing to other people. He recognizes that these are lost sheep of the house of Israel, and he's going to go and find them. This is our church. Um, you can go on Google Maps or Apple Maps and you can find it. And this is it right here. I've, I'm told that in the surrounding region there's roughly 90,000 people. How many people are sitting here today? 80? 69. 69. Kelvin always knows. Thanks, Kelvin. There's 69 people here today. And there's nearly 90,000 people out there. Do you know what they are? All of the houses around here? They're the lost sheep of the, of the house of Maitland. Maitland Church. You've got East Maitland, you've got Metford. All these different places where there are human beings who live who did not get the opportunities that you've had. People growing up in situations where the best way to deal with something is to punch it out. The best way to do something is to manipulate people. The best way to do something is to ignore it. Where pleasures come from, just the weird and wacky things of the world that actually wreck your life. The lost sheep of the house of our church right here. What are you worried about? Do you 
focus on the minutia and are wor worried and terrified about keeping yourself pure and just watching that door lest anything weird and wonderful should walk in? Or are we going out, breaking down barriers, meeting with cultures and people who are going through things we've never been through, willing to break down those barriers? We had a beautiful night the other night with some beautiful Muslim people, making friends with them. How many people here have a friend who is a Muslim? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. How many people who have friends with people who are Sikh or Buddhist or from just or even just atheist and just in the these are our people they're not it's not us and them they are our people and you've been called and commissioned given a special insight into the character of God and what it means to live these are our people out here and yet what are the things that we argue about so often oh what oh, I just saw that person do this he's not washing his hands properly metaphorically Ooh, and, and, and there's like, the, like that lady that I, I told you about, the guy walks into church. He, he needs Jesus, this guy. And I'm, I'm working with him. I'm doing Bible studies every week, but she just berates him because of the way he dresses. I don't want the house of God to be... Friends, what kind of church did God design us to be? A church on the run? and Winners on the run? God designed his church to be victoriously going forward above and beyond all of the just the pettiness of argument, this person said he's called us to ride above all of that and to be a blessing to the world. But we can be just like, oh, this person, and you just there's this defensiveness, and we're up in the corner in the church, just just terrified. But praise the Lord, we washed our hands the right way, because that's what pleases God. Apparently, it's a really convicting message, isn't it? When we compare the church of today with the Israel of yesterday. We all struggle with the same things. This, this quotation is just incredible. Desire of Ages, page 403. Notice this. The same agencies that barred men away from Christ 1,800 years ago, that's when she wrote it, are at work today. The spirit which built up the petition wall between Jew and Gentile is still active Pride and prejudice have built strong walls of separation between different classes of men. Christ and his mission have been misrepresented and multitudes feel that they are virtually shut away from the ministry of the gospel. But let them not feel that they are shut away from Christ. There, notice this. There are no barriers which man or Satan can erect, but that faith can penetrate. Can I hear an amen to that comment? I've got a question for you today. Which, day, which way does the gate swing? This will make sense in a second. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell or Hades shall not prevail against it. How have you understood that verse in the past? And I'm going to act it out to help you understand. When it talks about the gates of hell not prevailing against it, do you see this? The gates of hell not prevailing against it. Whoa, all the, all the, all the stuff's going to come flooding in. No, those gates are going to stay just shut. They're going to stay, stay nice and closed. To be honest, I actually, when I, when I first read that, I was like, it talks about the gates of hell not prevailing against it. That's my, that was my understanding. It's like, whew. 
What about the other way? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. What if that was what Jesus was trying to communicate? These strongholds that the devil has set up, different ideologies, different ways that he's trying to lock people in, into darkness. What if he's designed that the church, that those gates locking them in, should not prevail against the church? They can walk confidently just like Jesus did, breaking down walls, stepping over barriers and seeing God do amazing, amazing things. Rather than us going, oh, I'm so glad that those gates are closed. If they were to open, whoa, it does all come flooding in. Friends, walk at the gate. The children of Israel walked around the, the, the city of Jericho seven times and the walls fell down. What if we were to go confidently forward, believing our commission, which is to set the captives free, to free them from their self-destructive way of life, which hurts people and gets hurt in the process? What if we were to go out there confidently knowing that the walls that the devil set up will fall down because we come with love, just like Jesus, for any type of person? What if that was our experience here at Maitland? It would be amazing. Which, which way does the gate swing? Rather than just celebrating the gate is closed, run at the gate. If there's something that's keeping you away from a loved one or some friends and there's barriers, walk confidently towards the gate with a prayerful, humble heart and watch God do wonders. Because it is the love that Christ can put inside of our hearts that will melt hearts of stone and break walls down. Which way does the gate swing? In closing, I want to tell you a story. Coming to the end of World War II, um, Hitler was on the retreat. He was running backwards. The Allied forces were closing in on every side. There was a particular man that spoke to Roosevelt, I think it was. I think it was Roosevelt or someone else. He was a, someone who was a curator or a, of a museum or something like that and had a desperate passion for art. He had got wind of the idea that over in the battle zone, this is in America, so over in the battle zone in Europe, Hitler, on the retreat, was cleaning out all of the masterpieces, Michelangelo's works, all these different things, taking them all and hiding them away. He wanted to build this thing called the Führer Museum, where you'd have all of the works of art. And on the retreat, he was taking things of priceless value with him. And these guys said, well, we're going to win the war. Oh, that's a, that's a guarantee. We just see it all happening. The Russians are coming down. The Allied forces are coming in. It's just going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to be a victory. But this guy was thinking, I just cannot abide the thought that these works of art of infinite, va- infinite value couldn't put a price on them, that these things will be taken and just robbed, that, that, that Hitler would be able to rob Europe of all of its art. He got a group of people together and they were named the Monuments Men the monuments men. And they set out... A, the, the war is coming to an end and most of, the, most of the soldiers didn't want to help him out. But they were trying to strategically find out what is he doing with the art and they were able to rescue just thousands of pieces of artwork that we can go and see in Europe today. And as Hitler realised that he was going to lose, he started destroying the artwork. It's just like a really cheap tactic, you know. Oh, they're coming... They, put them down, they were putting them down in mines and in different places and they were just destroying the artwork. Because of these guys and their initiative, their forward thinking, their front foot approach, they were able to rescue things of just incredibly priceless value. Is Jesus going to win the war? 
between good and evil? Absolutely he will. Jesus will win the war. The battle between good and evil, it's done and dusted. We have the end of the story in the book of Revelation. Good will win, evil will lose. But friends, is it right for us to sit down and be celebrating that, fantastic, the war is going to be won. It's all going to turn out in the end. What is the devil doing on the retreat? As, as, as the kingdom of God is moving in and he's on the back foot, he's walking backwards, what is he doing? What is he taking with him? As many people as possible. Revelation 12, 12. Therefore, this is talking about what Jesus did at the cross. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, for he knows that he has a short time. I want to tell you, friends, Jesus made us in his image. We are his masterpieces. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are his masterpiece, his workmanship, and every single person on this world, God is working actively in their lives to restore his image in their lives. They are more valuable than Michelangelo's works. You couldn't find a painting or a sculpture on this planet that can equal the value of a soul. And every single day, as the devil's retreating and he's getting pushed into the corner, he's taking with him as many people as possible. And I'm ashamed that sometimes I feel so comfortable about that. We're going to win the war. It's going to be fantastic. I feel so comfortable about it. And yet he's retreating and taking with him hordes of precious articles that you could never replace. Friends, in our community today, there are precious people that the devil's trying to take their lives today. They don't have much time left. Maybe they're old. Maybe they're sick. Maybe they've just been trapped in darkness. They've never had an opportunity to see the light of God's glorious gospel. The devil wants to take them down. Do you guys want to be monuments men in the equivalent in our context here at church? Where we recognize these beautiful works of art that God is working on out there in the community and work laboriously, tirelessly to rescue them? Is that something that we want to do? Amen? We're going to do street care. This is an opportunity to make friends. To make friends. Friends with people you've never met before. To have them, to spend time with them, help them out and invite them to your home for dinner. To become their friend and to be, to let the fruits that grow on your tree, the fruits of love and peace and joy and kindness, for them to feed on them for a while. Most people, all they get to eat is frustration and anger and intolerance. Give them something else to eat from your tree. Let them eat kindness and patience as they talk to you. May they see kindness in your face. This is not just about doing a, a good deed. This is not just about doing a routine or a ritual. This has got to be a way of life. And I've been thinking about some strategies that we can do for next year to be able to meet our neighbours for the purpose of connecting with them, having them in our homes for, for meals, connecting with them and letting God do some amazing work of healing them. My challenge is for you today. Are you winners on the run? Or are you winners on the march? Are you going this way or are you going this way? Are the gates swinging this way or are they swinging this way? Because so often those doors there seem like this. The gates of hell are prevailing against us. But friends, whatever door, whatever household, whatever situation, be confident that by God's grace, those walls will not be able to withstand before a loving and lovable Christian. 
Can I see the hands of those who want to, to commit? This is a serious commitment. Don't bother up your hands if you're not interested. A serious commitment to be monuments, men and women, who are looking for infinite value and doing whatever it takes, whatever it takes to be able to get them back. Praise the Lord. Let us pray together. My Father in heaven, I want to thank you that you saw me and you thought that I was valuable. I don't understand that, Lord, but I want to pray that we would begin to see other people through your eyes, to love them and to care for them, Lord God, to reach out across the gap and to actually walk over the barriers and to take the initiative in helping and healing people. May we not be afraid of defilement. May we not be terrified about the the world crashing in on us, but may we realize that the world can't stand up. The kingdom of darkness cannot stand up to a loving and lovable Christian who puts people above everything else. I pray your blessing upon us, Lord. Hear our, our pledges and commitment to be monuments, men and women, to labor to recover these precious articles of treasure that are just around us here at Maitland. In Jesus' name. This message was made available by Adventist Streaming. For more resources like this, visit adventist-streaming.org. The Living Stones Quartet will now sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior. And life more abundant and free Turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in His wonderful face And the things of earth will grow strangely
shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to In the United States, around $80 billion a year is spent on incarcerating people. Now, think of the cost, the financial and emotional and other costs involved, of failed marriages and failed relationships. A marriage counselor can cost upwards of $200 an hour. Consider what we find in 2 Chronicles 12, 12. Speaking of King Rehoboam, it says, And when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him that he would not destroy him altogether. And also in Judah, things went well. Notice that when he humbled himself, things went well. Imagine if husbands and wives were willing to do that. That'd save a lot of strife. It's simplistic to say that humility would prevent crime, but it's true. So where do you need to humble yourself? If God is speaking to you about something in your heart, you don't have to do it God's way. But if you do, things go well. I'm John Bradshaw for It Is Written. Let's live today by every word. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.